Our Bible reading uh, this morning is from Luke chapter 4. Uh, we're continuing on our series of sermons through Luke's Gospel. We're up to uh, verse 31. We'll be reading from verse 31 to 44. If you're using the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1022. Uh, we are very early on in Jesus' ministry. Luke tells us that Jesus is about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Uh, he's been sent into the desert to be tempted. And um, in last week, we looked at Jesus' first recorded sermon for us um, in Nazareth, his hometown. So I'm going to read uh, Jesus' sermon, a preach at Nazareth, um, from verse 18 to 19, and then I'm going to go to our passage this morning, which is in verse 31. So this is Jesus' sermon for us. Uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, uh, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus then says in verse 21, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And before we uh, go and look at our passage this morning, let us pray together. Lord, uh, your word is truth. Uh, sanctify us by the truth. Uh, give us ears uh, to hear and hearts to listen as you speak to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit, Lord, apply your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Reading from Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in, the midst, in their midst, uh, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirit, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, 
for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. In the passage that we looked at last week, Jesus goes back uh, to his hometown. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and he delivers there an astonishing sermon. In that sermon, he makes the claim that he has been appointed by God to proclaim good news to the poor. And without going into all the details, in his sermon, the sermon he preached in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is declaring that he has come to bring good news to those who have been crushed by the ravages of the fallen world. Jesus in his sermon is not only going back to the time of the exile and the return from exile, which is where he's quoting from in Isaiah 61, he's going all the way back to a greater exile, the exile from the Garden of Eden. In his sermon, he makes the remarkable claim that he has come to bring a greater return. He makes the claim that he has come to bring hope to the poorest of the poorest of this world. Those who have nothing, the destitute, the homeless, those with the greatest of needs, and those who know that they desperately need him. He makes the claim that he has been sent by God to proclaim freedom to those who have become prisoners of this broken world. He doesn't mean those who are physically in prison. He means those who are in bondage to sin. He means those who are in bondage to all kinds of addictions and in bondage to the forces of evil. He makes the claim that he has come to open the eyes of those who do not know God. He has come to open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind, making God known to them. He makes the claim that he has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And while Isaiah in the same breath speaks of the day of the Lord's vengeance when he is preaching this passage, Jesus leaves that part out of his sermon. His message is one of grace. And he claims he has come to fulfill all of this, to complete all of this. And the people in the synagogue of Nazareth marveled at his words, but they couldn't get past the fact that this was coming to them from the mouth of Jesus. Because when they heard Jesus, all they saw was Jesus, the son of Joseph. And from that point onward, everything unravels. And as one person puts it, this is the sermon that almost got Jesus killed. There is, an there is an expression in the English language that says familiarity breeds contempt. This was the mistake they made. When they saw Jesus, all they saw was the son of the local woodworker. All they saw, all they saw was the son of the local carpenter. And they responded in unbelief. How could a man like him make all those claims. How could the son of a carpenter make all those amazing claims? Well, our challenge this morning is to come to our passage paying careful attention to what Jesus is saying and to what he's doing. It would be easy for us to think 
Why should we listen to someone who has been rejected by his own countrymen? Why would we listen to someone uh, who was rejected by those who knew him best? Well, the answer is given to us in our passage, so let us pay careful attention to what Luke is saying to us here. I've got two points for us this morning. The first one is this. Jesus is no ordinary teacher. So in verse 31, Jesus tells us that he went down. He went down to Capernaum. Uh, it's only a small detail, but Luke uh, likes to be accurate. He likes details. He's a detailed person. So he tells us that Jesus went down to Capernaum. He went down because Capernaum, a city by the Sea of Galilee, was situated about 200 meters below sea level, while Nazareth was about 400 meters above sea level. And so if Jesus has been traveling from Nazareth to Capernaum, he indeed went down. More interestingly, perhaps, is the connection or the irony between what happens at the end of the previous passage, where the people of Nazareth reject Jesus, they take him on a hill, and they want to throw him down a hill. They want to do this because Jesus had warned them that he, if they were to reject him, that he would go to the Gentiles. Well, ironically enough, they do reject Jesus. And now Jesus is down, down the hill. Where is he? He's right there where they didn't want him to go. He's in Gentile territory. Luke clearly wants us to compare the two passages. In our previous passage, we have a city, we have a synagogue, we have a Sabbath day, and we have Jesus teaching. In our passage this morning, we have a city, we have a synagogue, we have a Sabbath day, and we have Jesus teaching. Jesus taught. This is what he did. Uh, it was his main activity in verse 15. Right at the beginning of his ministry, what is Jesus doing? He's teaching. And Luke says to us in verse 15 that he was glorified when he, when he teach. In other words, praise for what he was teaching. Jesus preached, when Jesus preached in verses 18 to 19, he says to us three times in this short quote from Isaiah 61, he says there that he was sent to proclaim. He uses that word three times. I've come to proclaim. I've come to proclaim. I've come to proclaim. He's got a message to deliver. Luke makes it clear to us that Jesus was sent by God and was anointed by the Holy Spirit to teach, to proclaim a message. And it's going to take Luke multiple chapters and multiple episodes to unpack what this message is. It's going to take many stories, many parables, a lot more miracles for us to have a full grasp of what this message is. But in our passage this morning, uh, we'll have a glimpse of this. And we see Jesus, he's teaching. And if we were to line up all that Luke has taught us already about Jesus, that he is the obedient and faithful son of God, then we've got to think, there's no ordinary teacher here. This is the Son of God teaching. If we were to, to line up and to remember that Luke has already told us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that in him God has come to visit and redeem his people, that he is the new and better Adam, then we would realize that Jesus was no ordinary teacher. And with him, in his words, He's carrying no ordinary message. And the people of, of his day, uh, they could tell 
They could tell straight away. They could tell that Jesus taught and spoke with an authority that no other teacher had. It's like when you are on the plane and the captain picks up the mic and says, this is your captain speaking. When he does, everyone pays attention because the captain's words carry weight and authority. Jesus' words carried weight. His words were powerful. It gripped people's ears and hearts. It amazed people. And as we will see in the next few verses, Jesus' words have the power to change people's lives. The rabbis of Jesus, they would teach, but they would always teach by making references to the work of others. But Jesus taught with divine authority. And his word and his message have the power to completely change people's lives. Uh, he has the power to make sinners into saints and to make enemies of God into children of God. Jesus' words have the power to change people's lives. And he was anointed by God for this very task. And I think that the Sermon on the Mount is a good example of Jesus' divine authority in teaching. In the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember this sermon, Jesus would often cite the Old Testament and say, you have heard that it was said, but I say, I say to you. So when Jesus taught, he taught with divine authority. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that when Jesus walked the earth, God spoke to us by his son, Jesus. Jesus spoke the very words of God. Jesus is God. God the Son. God in the flesh. When Jesus speaks, God speaks. So why should we pay careful attention to the claims of Jesus? Why should we pay careful attention to what Luke is telling us about Jesus? Well, the answer is because Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He came into the world to teach for a very specific mission. To teach us about the hope that God is offering to a dying world. And it's bigger here in this chapter than just you and I. By quoting Isaiah 61, uh, Luke is telling to us that this message is for the whole world to hear. And this, is and this is exactly what he says in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. His priority was to teach people about the kingdom of God. He came to tell the world about God's plan of salvation for a fallen world. He came to save that he came to save fallen humanity, that he came to give us back what we lost when Adam failed and sinned against God, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He came to save us from the judgment and the condemnation that this world will one day have to face when God judges the world. Jesus came to be our Savior. He came to teach us that God, through him, was reversing, turning back the effects of the fall. So let me ask you two questions this morning. First, can you afford to ignore such a great salvation? Can you afford to ignore such a great teacher? Can you afford to ignore such a great savior? So let me plead with you this morning not to ignore, not to reject, not to easily dismiss 
what Jesus is teaching to us here. The people of Nazareth heard the message of Jesus, and all they saw, all they could see, was the son of Joseph. They rejected Jesus, and by their actions, they rejected God, and by their actions, they, they rejected salvation. And all of this because they failed to recognize who Jesus was. A British preacher once tells the story. He was in a waiting room waiting for the doctor or for someone to call him. And he's in the waiting room and he's sitting there for a while. And he notices someone just across, just across of him. He doesn't pay much attention to who the other person was until the door opened. And someone walked out and called out, William. And when he looked up, he realized that he was Prince William the future king of England, sitting right there in the waiting room with him. But he was not paying any attention and didn't recognize him until it was too late. Like Luke, he's, he's sending an invitation to us this morning to recognize who Jesus is. He's calling us to get, him, to get Jesus right. He's the teacher sent by God. He's no ordinary teacher. And Jesus speaks... God speaks and he tells us that he has come to save us to save you and I he says to us that he's going to do this by giving his life so that we might be free that he was ready to shed his blood so that we would be forgiven can you afford to ignore such a great Savior Secondly, let me ask you this other question. And this is for those who have been walking with Christ maybe for some time now. Are you still amazed at the teachings of Jesus? Does it still grip your heart? Are you still eager to hear from him as he speaks to us in the Bible? Are you still in awe of his grace, his compassion, his love for sinners, his cross, his intercession for us at the right hand of God. Are we still blown away by the good news of the gospel? Does it continue to humble us? Or have we become blasé or bored maybe by the teachings of Jesus, wishing that this sermon would end quickly so you could go home? Do you have in your heart a hunger and a thirst and a desire to know Christ more and more? Or have your love and passion for Christ gone cold? If it has, if, if it has let me encourage you to consider three things. The first one, let me encourage you to examine yourself before God. Is there any sin, any burden that you need to bring to God in prayer? Secondly, let me encourage you to join with us when we partake of the Lord's Supper. The Bible teaches us that Christ is present in a special way at the Lord's table to minister to us, to help us, to nourish us, to build us up. This sacrament that Jesus has given to us is given to us to nourish us, to lift us up. And thirdly, let me encourage you to find someone a mature believer in Christ 
to read the Bible with you. The Word of God says, uh, the, the Word of God, as says the Psalms, is food for our souls. It nourishes us, it enriches us. Jesus is no ordinary teacher with a no ordinary message. Let us pay careful attention to his words. He is the savior of the world. He's come to save you and I. The question is, can you afford to ignore him? A second point this morning. Jesus is involved in no ordinary ministry. So when Jesus says in verses 18 and 19 that he has come to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and freedom for those who are oppressed, Jesus is not making any vain claims here. These are not empty words. Jesus speaks those words because he sees his mission, he sees his ministry, he sees his work as the reversal of what happened all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. He sees his mission, his purpose, to be the reversal of the fall of humanity. When humanity fell into sin, the world fell into sin. When humanity rebelled against God, God cursed the world and subjected the world to futility and corruption. And we see it all around us. We now live in a world full of hardships, and diseases and disorders and pain and suffering. We live in a world of darkness and sin and wickedness and wars and rumors of wars where Satan and his demons are at work. But as we will see in our passage, Jesus has the power to free humanity from the effects of the fall. Please look with me at verse 33. Jesus is teaching. He is in the synagogue and there in the synagogue, uh, there was a man possessed by a demon. Uh, Luke uses three words to describe this man. He has within him a spirit that is unclean and demonic. This is not someone who is struggling uh, with a rare form of psychological or mental disorder. This is a man possessed by a demon, an agent of Satan. And in verse 34, when the demon finds himself in the presence and under the teaching of Jesus, the demon cries out. Now, I'm no good actor, but in the Greek word, it's a word, that little word that starts with H and finishes with an H, uh, is an emotive response. And when I read it, uh, I said, ha, what do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Probably the, the, the better way to read this is something like that. Ah! A loud cry. I do it badly. <laughs> I'm no actor. And in one of the books that I've been reading, some people say, you never know, don't you? You never know who's going to be at church on Sunday. We would never imagine that a man possessed by a demon would be at church on Sunday morning, sitting there in the synagogue while Jesus is teaching. But here he was. And the man comes face to face with Jesus. And unlike the people of Nazareth, the neighbors, the friends growing up alongside Jesus. Unlike the people of Nazareth, this demon knows exactly who Jesus is. Jesus is the Holy One of God. He knows that he is standing in the presence of holiness, perfect holiness. Now Stephen Lawson, uh, the American preacher, writing about this title says this. He says this title, the Holy One of God, means that Jesus is infinitely and absolutely holy. 
fully and perfectly divine, completely sinless, without moral blemish whatsoever. His being is holy. His character is holy. His mind is holy. His motives are holy. And in Luke's Gospel, we are reminded of the words of Gabriel to Mary, this child to be born, this child will be called holy, the Son of God. This is a face-off between light and darkness, holiness and evil, righteousness and wickedness. And some people think that there is a battle happening here. But let me put it to you. There's no battle here at all. There's no battle here. All there is is fear on the side of the demon and complete power and authority and control on the side of Jesus. There's no battle here. In verse 35, Jesus rebukes the demon with his words. It's not like, in this, it's not like uh, those scenes in a Hollywood movie. There's no candles here, no incantations, no rituals, no so-called holy water. There is only the words and the commands of Jesus, the Holy One of God, coming to do what he said he has come to do. In verses 18 to 19, he commands the demon and the demon is completely defeated. The man is left unharmed, freed from the power of evil. He was living in spiritual captivity. He was a slave in his own body, but he has now been freed. Just like Jesus claimed, he came to do. And Jesus' power doesn't stop at the spiritual realm. Jesus' power extends to the physical world as well. And so in verse 38, Jesus leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was ill. Notice, it's his mother-in-law, so Simon is married. And she's ill with a high fever. Luke again is very precise with the details. He tells us that this is a dangerous kind of fever, a high fever, a life-threatening illness. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus again, with his words, rebukes the fever. And Simon's mother-in-law is completely healed. She is instantly restored to full health. Jesus doesn't say to her, uh, that you need to stay in bed for two days. Jesus doesn't prescribe to her a week of Panadol or medication. She gets up. She's completely healed. Jesus rebukes the fever and sends it running. The woman is completely healed to the extent that she gets up and in thankfulness to Christ serves him. We should pay careful attention to the claims of Jesus. This is no ordinary teacher. This is no ordinary man. We should, do, we, we should do so because we should pay careful attention to his claims. We should do so because, not because of the miracles, but because of what the miracles are saying to us about Jesus. The miracles are given to point us to who he is and what he claims he has come to do. Jesus is no ordinary teacher. He has come to proclaim a message. And he has come not only to proclaim the message, but to fulfill it. 
and he has been given power and authority to do so, to accomplish what he has come to do. And he will do this most perfectly on the cross, where he will lay down his life for you and I. So can we trust him with our lives? Can we trust the Son of God who entered our world to die for us? Can we trust him? Can we trust him with our burdens? Can we trust him with our sufferings? Can we bring our illnesses to him? Yes, we can. Can we pray for healing? Yes, we should. Jesus has the power and the authority to bring light where there is darkness. He has the power and the authority to bring healing where there is illness. And not only does he have the power and the authority, he has been given the mandate and the mission to destroy the works of the devil, to free the world from darkness, and to free the world from the curse of sin. However, does this mean that God will heal every one of our, every one of our diseases? No. It may, be the, it may be the will of God that we be miraculously healed. That may well be God's will for us. It might be the will of God that we may be medically healed. It might be the will of God that we might be healed over a long period of time. But it might be in the will of God that we might not be healed. It might be in the will of God for us to learn to trust him and submit to him in the midst of our sufferings, like Jesus did when he was tempted. It might be the will of God that we might learn things through our sufferings, things that we would otherwise never learn, so that in turn we might use what we've learned to comfort others. But here is what the Bible says. A day is coming when Christ will return. And when he returns, he will make manifest the kingdom of God. God reigns, God rules now, but then it will be made manifest. It will be made clear for all to see. Every ambiguity, every confusion will be taken away. Then we will see Jesus for who he truly is, without any ambiguity, without any confusion. We will see him and we will know that he is who he said he was, the Son of God. Christ will return and he will bring with him the new heavens and the new earth. On that day, God will wipe every tear from our eyes. Pain shall be no more, crying shall be no more. Grief shall be no more. Mourning shall be no more. Cancers shall be no more. Miscarriages shall be no more. Domestic violence shall be no more. Wars shall be no more. Death shall be gone forever. And all this is possible because God sent his son to die for you and I. Can you afford to ignore such a great saviour? In the meantime, 
What should we do? What should the church priority be as we wait for the return of our great king? Please look with me at verses 42 to 43. And when in worse day he departed, that is Jesus, and went into a desolate place. And Mark in his gospel tells us that Jesus has gone there to pray. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach. Remember, this is why he's come. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I must preach. I must teach. Don't hold me back. And he went preaching to the synagogues of Judea. So what was Jesus' priority? His priority was to teach and proclaim and preach the good news of salvation as widely as possible. Luke says to us in verse 40 that many people came to see Jesus and that he performed many miracles. Luke says to us that Jesus, in his compassion, healed many who were sick, that he showed them love. He laid his hands on them to heal them. And contrary to the response he received in Nazareth in his hometown, the people of Capernaum, they want him to stay. They want to keep Jesus close. But Jesus has to leave. He has a, a greater mission. He came to proclaim. He came to teach. And so off he goes. He goes to proclaim the kingdom of God. The way that Jesus was coming to bring salvation to the world was not by healing all the illnesses of the world or by casting out all demons, though he did a lot of that. The way that Jesus was going to bring salvation to the world was by sharing with the people around him the good news of the gospel. And that God has sent him into the world to die for the sins of the world. To give to us hope, eternal hope, not just hope for now and then, but hope that will extend into the world to come. Eternal hope, true hope. I am a child of the 80s and the 90s, and I remember the concerts and the songs and the rallies and the parades and the, the beautiful speeches spoken about how to heal the world and make it a better place for you and for me and the entire human race. How are we going with this? We had the war in Iraq. We had 9-11. We had wars between various tribes in Africa. We had famines. We had tsunamis killing hundreds. We had bushfires. We had the pandemic years. And now we have the war between Russia and Ukraine. And we have the rising tension between Israel and the Hamas. How are we going with healing the world? And in the face of all this, what should the church remember to do? What's our task? What's our mission? Well, the mission hasn't changed. We ought to bring the good, news of, the good news of the gospel to a dying world. This is what the world needs the most. It needs the gospel. It needs to know Jesus. It needs to know who he is and what he's come to do. So may the Lord give to each one of us this morning multiple opportunities to share the good news of the gospel to those around us. And let us not be ashamed of this wonderful gospel.